Hi, Victoria. Thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with me today. Of course, Alicia. Thank you. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Sure. Um, this feels like a, it will be a long-winded answer. Uh, <laughs> but I was, I was born in New Jersey and then moved to North Carolina when I was seven. Um, and so my family is Greek, so most of our food at home was that Greek. <laughs> um, but you know, we the restaurant was sort of sort of shaped our lifestyle. We were in the restaurant business, and so my grandfather had a diner in New Jersey. My father came to North Carolina to run what we called a fish camp, but it was basically just like yeah, like popcorn, shrimp, and fried catfish, <laughs> and hush puppies. And so there was just a mix of you know, home cooked food and then like pulling up to some, some booth in my dad's place or my grandpa's diner and getting like a cheeseburger deluxe or yeah, a hush puppy. (laughs) I didn't know you, you spent so much time in New Jersey. That's interesting. Yeah, it was, you know, I, I left when I was young, but my family is either there or in Greece. So we'd go up like multiple times a year. We'd, we've taken the train up, we, we drove a lot, um, you know, my whole family. And so I, I still visit a lot. I have very close cousins there. Um, so yeah. Awesome. And your work is in film, it's in journalism. You've also done food writing. How did you come to have such an eclectic career and how do these various facets of your work complement each other? Um, you know, I got into, I went to journalism school because I really wanted to tell, like, at the time I couldn't really pinpoint what longer form was. I don't think that was even a, a coined term um, back in the, the early 2000s when I went to college. Um, but, you know, I definitely wanted to tell more humanistic stories that didn't feel like the fluffy um, sort of local news human interest stories. But I did root everything I did in community-type journalism. Um, sorry, can you hear a dog? <laughs> That's okay. That? okay. A little <laughs> bit. So, <sorry. laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a community journalism approach to everything I do. And I think that parlayed into film once I realized, especially with food, like you can – I used food to get people to pay attention to other issues that were not just like what they're eating – um, and the people behind all that, but film was a much easier access point for that. And so I started, um, collaborating with filmmakers and getting into it myself for that reason. Right. And you've, you've made two short films that I've watched online grounded in local communities in North Carolina. Are those people in places that you had a relationship with before filming or were they, did they present themselves as interesting subjects? How did, how did you find those subjects basically? Um, yeah, I think it's all of those things. So <laughs> the, I, the first film I ever did was in 2014 and it's called Un Buen Carnicero, A Good Butcher. Um, and that was commissioned by the Southern Foodways Alliance. And they, you know, their original idea was Cliff's Meat Mark is, is an institution, this man, Cliff Collins, um, how cool, right, that he has, like, catering to the Latino community. Like, let's let's explore that. And I thought that that was not the story. The story was about, like, you know, how is he able to, quote-unquote, cater to a community, um, 
you know, who are the workers there. And so I, you know, started talking to the butchers behind the counter and we all just recognized each other from me being a customer. Um, that particular meat market is down the street from where I went to university, UNC Chapel Hill. And so I kind of knew them. Um, but then since then, my other small short film was about um, some cooks at Lantern Restaurant in Chapel Hill. Um, and both the butchers and a lot of those cooks are from the same part of Mexico, Celaya, Guanajuato. So I did my master's thesis work there with those their families and sort of doing like cross-border stories. Um, and so I got to know them even mm -hmm. more so after making these two short films because I then went and like, you know, stayed with their sisters for weeks and hung out with their mothers and like got their recipes down and like did this whole exchange with the families. So yeah, it, it a lot of times it develops into like more um, personal relationships. Right. And you focus your work on both the American South, where you live and grew up, and, and the global South, namely Mexico and Central America. What inspired you to ground your work in these places? Um, I think, you know, we coined that term global South a lot, and it's, it's obviously a physical geographical region. Um, but, you know, these places flow into each other. Um, the people do uh, commerce does commerce is allowed to cross borders. People are not, um, but it's, it's, um, there's so many parallels, especially when considering like the rural South here. Um, you know, when I meet families who speak Vam and they're from Guatemala and I meet families from like, you know, clustered, um, in this one rural area in North Carolina, but they all come from this one place in Mexico. And, um, you know, there's so many connections because of the people and because of the, you can call it academically migration patterns. A lot of it's rooted in labor. Um, mm -hmm. And, but, you know, I just, I don't know, with my work, I'm trying to make those connections of the South not being what we think it is. And, and as you know, as people from the United States, we tend to even use the term America and Americans to right. just mean the U.S. And that's not true either. So I'm sort of doing the same thing with the South and sort of pushing the idea of, you know, what the South actually means, what the global South is, what Southern is. Right. And I know you mentioned in your, in your bio that you, you're into the idea of dispelling the myths. And I think these are, these are certainly because of the things you named, because of the ways in which we conflate these places and in, in the ways that human migration is denigrated, but commercial migration is, is, a natural considered a natural part of of our lives. Um, these these places that you cover and and where you've you've spent so much time are places that are subject to myth making by you know this specifically like white gaze and specifically in media that's that's a gaze that doesn't get a lot of nuance. Um, and I how do you, is that kind of why you're I don't know if you, you wanted to work in more mainstream food media or if the nature of your work simply doesn't allow that um, because of, you know, all these issues. <laughs> That's a great question <laughs> or a comment rather. I mean, I'm, right. not sure, I'm not sure if I've wanted to work in <laughs> mainstream right. food media. I definitely think that second part is true, that it, um, 
anytime I've been asked to and approached by editors and um, have tried, I always just feel like my work has, and it's not even my work. It's the stories that I'm trying to right. like share have been diluted. Um, yeah. And you know, you're right in saying that there's no nuance on these, like even in migration and immigration reporting, like um, I'm talking with other immigration journalists, like we struggle with this a lot. Like um, anytime there's a border crisis, it's labeled as such um, when often like a lot of those things, a lot of what's happening in that moment of crisis is something that has been compounded over time. Right. Um, and these, these families that are being featured in stories are just sort of written about as foreign and just literally literal foreign bodies coming mm-hmm. in. Um, and even when there's like this tinge of empathy in the reporting, it kind of misses the point and the connection of, um, you know, I meet a lot of people who have just arrived, who have had like, who have cousins or other family members who have been here 20 years or, or whatever. Um, everyone already has a story of, of the North, which is what they call us. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they have, they already have stories of people who have been here. And I think that gets lost too. I think. Um, And then when, when we do talk about history, a lot of the work is very intellectualized and that's important and has its place. And I, I do it too. Um, But we fail to recognize like the actual people and, you know, new generations of, growth that are happening within like demographics and social circles and families um, related to like maybe the labor history we're pointing to or, or other things. Right. And you've been reporting so much recently on the lack of protections for workers at North Carolina poultry plants during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think you've been doing such an amazing job of presenting this kind of this empathy without paternalism that that maybe is always missing from um, the coverage of immigration. And, um, you, you know, you imp- depicted this um, day in the life of a worker who, who also had a birthday amid the uncertainty of sickness. And, you know, you noted how local officials ignore these workers' needs because they're largely undocumented. Um, and so I, has North Carolina always been home to the meat processing industry? And in other times, non-crisis times, if that ever exists, um, does the lack of concern for undocumented workers, how does that manifest politically and culturally? That was a, that was a long-winded question. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, thank Thank you. Thank you for your, your commentary too and my work. I appreciate that. And it's very, those things are very hard to do. Um, also because I've been covering these sort of issues for so long, I, um, I also have to make sure I don't slip into a formula as a writer and just kind of Mm -hmm. regurgitate the same type of story. Um, and so part of that is, is really getting to know people and asking, um, questions about them um, right. It's harder now during during COVID. I I did meet that one woman. Um, I I drove out to her home and we spoke through her window. Um, and part of that was to make sure that she felt okay sharing because it's such there are a lot of risks attached to um, you know being public about your story when you have precarious legal status. Um, but it, you know, I usually spend a lot more time with people 
um, and it sometimes shows up in three sentences. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. Um, but meat has been huge in North Carolina. We are one of the top pork producers and there was a moment and I'm not sure if it's still that way, but up until very recently, there was definitely um, this common sort of catchphrase where we would say North Carolina has more hogs than people, which is absolutely true. We had more <laughs> pigs being raised and slaughtered in our meat industry in the state than we had people. And we also, there was another stat about how we pumped more antibiotics into those animals than we were giving out to the human population of our state. Um, so it's huge here. Smithfield is one of the bigger ones. But then there's also poultry. Um, and so, you know, I did, I, the story you're referencing was out in eastern North Carolina. I did another story here in the more central part of the state um, about a town called Siler City that um, has had poultry plants sort of revive the town, then close during the 2008 recession, then reopen. Um, and I was interviewing workers at the current plant who arrived here, um, I was interviewing workers at the current plant who had arrived here in the 90s because they had heard that there was work in poultry. Um, wow. And so there's this small town that is, um, right now it's about 30% Latino, but at a, at a moment it was 49%. Um, and it's, you know, rural North Carolina, uh, which is another thing, like there's no dearth of diversity here, but people just expect to hear American South and they think of just a very flat narrative. Does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, No, no. And but yeah, so the that there is this huge population. And, you know, I come in on Long Island where I'm from. It's we've had um, um, there's been a massive influx of immigration from Central America and South America since like 1990. And that manifested uh, in in some in violence um the shifting demographic and also in like this very trumpist but before trump um political local political kind of um uh i don't know just the way that the poli- the local politicians would talk about people was in, insanely dehumanizing and and just disgusting. Um, but and that's kind of not really changed um in 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 the last 20 years, um, Long Island continues to be very segregated, very racist. Um, and that, you know, it manifests in, in policy and it it manifests in, in something as small as like a village town board, you know, where like one third of the population might be Latino, but, um, everyone on the board is white and that sort of thing. Um, like what is, because like, you're right. Like people, people think of, uh, they hear North Carolina and they think of this monolithic, extremely, you know, black and white kind of um, population and demographic. But how does that kind of diversity that you're talking about, like, how how does it, what does it look like in the day to day um, life of of someone who lives in North Carolina? You know, I think it depends on where, like, in in the more rural areas, um, it's still low wage workers who are Latino um, and other immigrant populations. A lot of these poultry plants, for example, um, hire refugees from different countries um, in the Middle East and Africa. 
um, from Southeast Asia too. Um, so I think it just all depends on where, but from when I'm seeing, you know, the two poultry stores I did just in the last month um, in Eastern North Carolina, there's really no political power. Um, mm -hmm. There aren't, there aren't any Latino representatives in our state period. There's no Latino senators in our state. Um, which is interesting because we are the fastest growing Latino population in the country. Um, and so, you know, you think of a place with like a rooted Latino population, like Texas, for example, or even Florida, where there are, um, you know, politicians representing their own communities. Um, and here that's, that hasn't happened yet. Um, there are like a couple of people now. What's been interesting to me is seeing that a lot of times when I interview workers, I interview their kids and their kids are finishing college or just finished college. Um, but very few stay, even if they do go to a state school, they end up leaving, um, and finding jobs in other States. And so that's been interesting to me. Um, and I haven't really explored that much, but there's not, there aren't even a lot of like native Spanish speaking journalists here. Mm -hmm. Um, but there is like, there are amazing initiatives on college campuses with like undocumented students um, and allies, you know, working to push for in-state tuition for undocumented students. Like there's a lot on that level. Um, but as far as like actual power players to affect policy, there's no one making those decisions representing this community at all. Right. Right. And for you personally, is, is cooking a political act? Um, I think it is. And I think, you know, during this pandemic, I, I often said to myself how glad I was that I knew how to nourish myself. Um, it was always around in my home. And I think um, I'm realizing more and more that it is, you know, I, I always had an interesting, um, to me, it felt very traditional. And it was always something I wrestled with, because, you know, coming from like a my family, I would not say is conservative at all, but my culture can be, and it can be very much like their traditional expectations of a woman, especially. And so me knowing how to cook, you know, made my grandmother and other <laughs> aunties really proud. Um, but in a way that like showed that I was like marriage material. Right. Um, and here I am 37, like unmarried. Um, and that's fine by me, but you know, I had to like sort of wrestle with the like, um, and my friends growing up who didn't cook or didn't know how to do that, like, were always, like, these more, like, intellectual folks. And I'm sitting here, like, realizing, like, okay, maybe I didn't, I didn't know how to navigate a college application or I didn't know how to do some things that they did. But here I am, like, not starving and, like, growing my little garden in the back while we're in this pandemic and, like, stretching food the way I learned just by, like, sitting in my mother's kitchen doing homework. Um so I do think that there's something political in that. And I, I think people should, you know, when you asked me that question, I, it made me realize that people should frame it that way more. I think a lot of labor isn't, um, labor in the kitchen isn't honored in that way. It's seen as like, especially when it is an immigrant woman, for example, it's seen as like sort of like, oh, you must have learned that from your grandma. Oh, you must have like, 
I don't know. It's just kind of like falls into a trope, but it's not seen as political. But you think of um, people now, like women I know who are, who are texting me saying, hey, I'm making mole this Saturday, $12 a plate. It's like, great. You know, like there are folks like surviving right now because of cooking in more ways than just nourishing themselves and their family, but like actually making an income um, because there's no other way for them to. And that's political. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Victoria. Thank you, Alicia. Thanks. Bye.